0: and Dare to Lead podcasts. Brown's TED Talk is one of the top five most viewed in the world. And she is also the first researcher to have a filmed lecture on Netflix. And our other author, Dr. Yaba Blay, is a scholar, activist, and cultural creative whose work centers the lived experiences of Black women and girls. She has launched viral campaigns, including hashtag pretty and hashtag professional Black girl, and has appeared on CNN, BET, MSNBC, and NPR. Dr. Blay's work has been featured in the New York Times, Ebony, Essence, and The Root. A thought leader on Black racial identity, colorism, and beauty politics, she's a globally sought-after speaker and consultant. We are so honored to have this panel moderated by Tracy Thomas of the Stacks podcast, who is sure to ask the essential questions plaguing our mind. Tracy Thomas is the host of the Stacks, a weekly podcast about books and reading where she interviews authors, actors, politicians, and more about their love of books and how those books relate to the world we live in. Loyalty Bookstores is thrilled to be the bookseller for this panel at the Anti-Racist Literature Festival. Loyalty is a Black queer-owned indie bookstore dedicated to keeping the voices of BIPOC immigrant disabled and queer people within the Washington DC community front and center. We are so eager to hear from our authors so let's get this panel started. Thank you everyone.
1: Thank you so much Christine. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, We're gonna dive right in but before we do just out of sort of Respect for everyone, and and this last week and month and I mean year and lifetime. I just want to sort of check in with all three of you and just see how's everyone doing today. How are we feeling? How are we coming into this conversation? After this week, that could be the panel <laughs> in and of itself. So
2: Truly, it's <laughs> difficult for all of that because there's so much going on. But my go-to response these days is, "I'm keeping hope alive." Oh.
3: <laughs> Come on, <Jesse. laughs>
1: So I'm grateful for this. I love that. I love that. Well, I'm glad to be here with you all. And we'll sort of dive in. I think the place to start since this panel is on shame resilience. I think the place to start is just a quick, if possible, definition of shame resilience for folks who aren't familiar with that phrase. Um, And I, I think maybe Brene, you're probably the person to start that part of the conversation. Yeah,
3: I think um, to define shame resilience, we probably have to give shame a definition because it's it's a confusing construct that um, we hear a million times a day, but rarely stop and think about the definition. So from the data, we define shame as the intensely painful belief that there is something about us, something we've done or not done, that leaves us unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. Um, and... It is, sociologists call shame the master emotion. It is um, a very powerful, painful, and often paralyzing uh, emotion. Shame resilience is the learned ability to get through shame without sacrificing our integrity and who we are, and to come out of the other side of it with a deeper understanding of humanity and compassion. So it's not shame resilience, it's not just about, it's not shame resistance, because if we're as humans capable of empathy, we're capable of shame. But it is the ability to move through in a way that deepens our understanding of humanity, and shared humanity.
1: Thank you for sort of setting the stage for the rest of the day. I just, you know, you like to define the terms so we're all sort of working from the same place. Um, Tarana, so, this book, uh, the book that you and Brene co-edited, uh, created together, it consists of a bunch of different essays from some incredible authors. Yes, there it is, you your best thing. It has TSA Lehman, it has Jason Reynolds who are both on panels today. So shout out anti-racist book festival. Um, I'm wondering what you felt was possible or what you imagined was possible by writing and asking folks to write publicly about shame and about their experiences of trauma.
4: Well, the book is more than that, right? It's more than just just about people's shame and experiences of trauma. It is also about shame resilience. And I think that, um, you know, the conversations that Renee and I have, the conversations I've had with various people who are also writers in the book and other, other black folks really about, um, not for us not having a place to talk openly about the way that shame impacts our lives, right? We, um, I think, it impact, I think there's a universal response to shame, right? And Brene and, and captures that in her writing very much so. Right? We all must understand it more deeply and um, intimately because of her writing. And then there is a nuanced experience or a more individualized experience that is based on your culture, background, race, you know, all kinds of different things. Um, and witnessing so many people wanting to be to understand and connect to and be better like or anti-racist if you will um but not really seeing spaces for black people to unpack and deal with how shame impacts us um how shame is a tool of white supremacy how shame how vulnerability means something different when you say it to certain communities having a space to do that and feeling like like the way we all feel right now because of the last week when these times come, where's the space for us to have a release around that? And so these um, these stories aren't just about one thing; these, these essays, but it is kind of a soft place to land for, for black folks who really don't get a chance to do that often. It's not
1: just about some helping somebody else be better, but it's about unpacking our own stuff. Yeah, and we talk, you know, about black folks, and and you mentioned that in the book focuses on you know the experiences of black people. And that kind of leads me right to you, Yaba. you've written this and compiled this incredible book, One Drop, that is about sort of what, who is black and how is that defined in America and globally? And what does that look like? And what does it mean? And what is that identity? So I wonder, you know, not to ask you to distill your entire book and all your work down to like a few seconds, but I'm going to do it because that's what moderators do, Um, can In all this work, can you define what blackness even is? Like when you wrote the book, did you get a more clear answer or did you come away more confused? I guess is sort of what I'm getting at.
2: No confusion. Blackness is one of those beautiful things that doesn't require definition. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what this project kind of showed me you know and and kind of put the exclamation point on that i think much of the tension and much of the trauma comes from trying to define it and trying to come up with narrow definitions and then projecting that onto other people and then causing them pain and so on and so forth and so i think for me doing this project just even opened up the doors if you will you know opened up the arms of blackness even wider and which actually gave me and from what I hear from a lot of folks who've experienced the book, you know, a greater appreciation and love for blackness.
1: Yeah. I think one of the things that came became very clear to me in reading both of the books together, knowing that in preparation for today, was that one of the places that I think all people, especially in America, can kind of come together on is that there is shame around race and racism whether you're white and you're experiencing maybe your privilege for the first time and you're you're feeling shame around that or you're feeling shame around uh, as a black person maybe you're feeling shame around the stereotypes that you are being forced into and i'm wondering if in working on shame resilience there's a way that we can come together and find common ground to become more anti racist right as opposed to allowing The shame around our race and our experiences to to bring us further apart. I'm wondering if there is some common ground in a way that any of you see forward using that shame resilience when we talk about race. Who is the us that you speak to? Who is the us that's coming together? I guess Americans broadly. I think because my 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 feeling, you know, what I've seen and what I've read is that and what I've heard from friends and family and people that I'm around is that everyone is experiences shame. I mean, Brene says, unless you're a psychopath, I think, right? I think that's the distinction, if you don't experience emotion. So the question, I guess, is the us is, how can different individuals take their shame and, and work through it to start to be more anti-racist as opposed to letting it shut them down towards those conversations? I don't know.
4: That's That's interesting to me because I think one of the things that we that the book reveals is is the way that Black people have have um, practiced shame resilience without a title necessarily, right? um, Out of necessity and out of just like you know we call it just resilience around these certain things, but certainly it's because if we recognize shame as a tool of white supremacy, then shame resilience becomes our existence in many many ways um, I'm not and so if you're coming to me with your experiences of shame that are not um, related to the way I experience shame I don't know that we put those down maybe I'm not understanding the question as, as clearly as much as we lift them up <laughs> and and um, and share them that's what's happening in the book but I'm not sure how it how it's works as a tool, a tool for anti-racism, but maybe you can dig into
3: that stuff. Look at me, look at me throwing a football. <laughs> I don't know, like I'm gonna catch it and drop it probably, but um, so, bumble expected. I I think my answer to your question is no. If I understand the question, which is, can we? Is there something unifying about the shared experience of shame that both white people and black people, to get very specific, can find common ground around? And I and I think the answer for me is that there. What you know? What drives shame? you have to go to the head of the river and you have to figure out what drives shame. And so when I think, and and let me tell you, you're right on about this, Tracy, that shame and grief are probably two of the biggest barriers that I think, at least in my experience and my research, that members of dominant culture, majority culture, have to deal with in dealing with their own racism, is the shame about coming into awareness about what I really believe and how I act and the systems that I support unknowingly, the grief of that. But the problem is that shame is a function, if you want to back it way yeah, shame is a function really of dehumanization and i think if you look at yaba's work you look at what duran and i've tried to do i think if you look at what the commonality is we're trying to take the act of dehumanization head on um, and i don't think that the targets of white dehumanization can find shared ground with the people that are using shame as a tool to maintain power i mean that's that would be I think we've got our work to do. Yes, yeah, and I think yeah, it's just I think we've got our work to do. Um, I think it's different. I don't know.
2: How, I don't know how to comment. So That's I meant okay. A, that, that can a, lateral, awesome.
3: a lateral pass to Yava.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I was sitting there as both of you. I, I'm struggling with the question also because what just keeps coming up even listening to y'all is like it's different, right? There are different types of shame. There are different intensities of shame. The source of the shame is different. And and I think just as a general, my observation, just in the general pool of the work that we do in anti-racism or diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever the languages we want to use, I think we're so eager to find common ground and in hopes that that's the thing that's going to save us, that we can hinge upon and and just let's get past all of this stuff and the professor in me is like we got years of learning learning to do before we can even approach that and so I think we have to sit with that discomfort. We're so quick to want to say let's find a commonality and move together and it's like but that it eras Yeah it doesn't work that way. It erases too much too quickly. Yeah. Um so if there's shame associated for example With what it means to be black, if there's shame associated with what it means to be white, particularly as we are coming to understand white supremacy, right? As you were talking, I'm sorry, I'm all over the place, but when I think, when I asked you the question, you said, and I asked, um, who is the we or who is the us, and you said, Americans. I don't know that we all have the same relationship to America to claim an American identity. Like it's very rare that I've moved through the world as an American, Uh right? Given what America represents. And so, and I know I think too hard perhaps, (laughs) you know? Well, I, I, I get stuck on certain words that won't let me process. So when I hear Americans, I'm like, well, you're not talking to me. Even though I was born and raised in this country, Right. To claim an American identity to me says a lot, particularly in this moment, particularly in the context of talking about race.
1: Yeah, that's. A, I mean, that's such a great point, and yeah. I think, and I think that I do think that that answers my question, which, which is, you know, can we can we find common ground in the, in these feelings that people all experience in different ways? And what I'm hearing you all say is no, and I think that that is fully an answer to the question, a thousand percent. Um, one of the things I want to talk about specifically for, for black people um, is, and this comes up a lot in, in um, You Are Your Best Thing and also in more subtle ways in One Drop, is about sort of having vulnerability forced upon black people versus having the choice to be vulnerable. So I'm thinking of a moment, let's say, an encounter with a police officer, obviously feels very prominent this week, but even when someone reaches out to touch your hair as a black woman or a black man, and that that's a vulnerable and very intimate moment, or it can be, and that's being thrust upon you by someone else. And so I wonder, sort of, how claiming vulnerability for yourself versus having it thrust upon you, and let me tell that again, how embracing vulnerability for yourselves and letting down your armor as a choice manifests versus having the vulnerability of sort of existing in a white supremacist country, how those, how you can reckon those things um, for yourselves and each of you do not have to speak to blackness as a whole, but just for your experience.
4: One of the things that came up in our conversation before we started doing the book was this, this idea that, um, Vulnerability means different things when you when you bring it up, when you raise it to me as a black woman. Um I, that is that gets my gets my back. It's no one way to do it, and we have to be um, careful and, and I think nuanced and more specific when we're talking about different groups. That's I mean. I'll let you add more to
2: that. <laughs> Yama, did you have anything that you wanted to add? Um, you know, in my head, and thinking okay. about vulnerability and... <clears throat> Honesty keeps coming to mind and it's a different type of honesty and for me the type of vulnerability that I'm thinking about with all of our work particularly when you think about the the All of the authors and writers in y'all's book right who are telling a particular truth And I say particular truth in the same way that I think about the contributors to one drop like we don't have to expose Ourselves in a particular way right and I think the challenge in this context in this moment for so many black folks is, which truth am I allowed to tell, right? Which truth am I willing to tell? Because there there's a risk, right? If I tell my fullest truth, it might then um, be projected onto all black people, right? That might do us all some harm if you start to think of all of us thinking this way. Like I think about my work on colorism in general, right? And so how hard it is for so many deeply dark-skinned women to admit that there was a time in their lives where they didn't want to be deeply dark-skinned, particularly in this moment where we're still singing Black is Beautiful. Like, what would it What would it reflect on the entirety of women who look like me, on little girls who look up to me, on the race in general, for me to admit that I wanted to be lighter than I am or I wanted my hair to be straighter? No, I've always been Black and proud, Aww. right? What's at risk when you expose yourself in a particular way? What's at risk when you say you didn't have a great relationship with your mother? What's at risk when you, you know, like any any range of things, right, that, that we could say about our lived experiences. And so when I think about that vulnerability, on the one hand, people say, well, you know, I'm just telling my truth. It just feels so complicated because we have so many truths. And I do think that we make conscious decisions, particularly as black folks, about which truth we're gonna tell in front of which people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's so powerful. Um, Renee. I think this question maybe is for you, which is when we talk, both Tarana and Yavar are talking about sort of the individual and the collective. Um, And I'm wondering when we look at those things and we look at shame, resilience, and vulnerability as potential tools towards anti-racism, I think that maybe people feel more comfortable doing the work as individuals. I'm going to fix this on myself. I'm going to talk to my child. I'm going to speak up at my next PTA meeting. I'm going to be nicer to my black coworker or or whatever that looks like, but these very individual moments that may be vulnerable. And I'm speaking specifically about white people right now, just to be clear. Um, And I'm wondering how we can imagine these tools of vulnerability and shame resilience as something that could maybe be working together as a communal act to dismantle racism and the systems. how are you able to get vulnerable when it means fighting for your taxes to be higher or making sure that your child ends up in a certain school that maybe isn't the most beneficial to you? You know, like what? How? I guess the question is about how can we use this for what to give up as for white people?
3: Well, I'll start by saying I certainly cannot speak on
1: behalf of white people. That would okay. be... Sorry, everyone here speaking on behalf of uh, themselves. I'm not a white. I can assure no, you. I, I, I mean this to be a conversation between all of us, but sort of as tools. Because, I mean, you, you're all experts who, who talk okay. about these things. So, I, yes.
3: Okay, so I am gonna. Ha- I was trying not to say anything, but I just have to go back real quick to the yes. touching of the hair. Um, that, that's a really important example of what vulnerability is not. So that is, that is an act of dehumanization. That is a private body as public space. Um, and so so one of the things I want to say about vulnerability is that vulnerability has a very simple definition. It's, it's uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. I've done something that puts me at risk because I can't control how it's being perceived. My emotions may be perceived differently than what I'm feeling. And there's a lot of uncertainty, and so vulnerability minus boundaries is not vulnerability. So really important to know that um, when someone reaches out to touch someone's hair, that's not an act of vulnerability or an act of, of, of inviting vulnerability. That is an act of dehumanization that
1: requires boundaries. I mean, so that's a different thing. But can I sorry? Can I ask a follow up question about that just for clarity's sake? If If someone reaches out to touch my hair, and that is not an act of vulnerability on my part, but I do feel vulnerable, is that a, there's a distinction between those two things, experience of vulnerability versus the act of opening yourself up.
3: Yes. Yes. So it's a really great point. So you'll probably feel vulnerable if they do that because you're going to have to set a boundary or you're going to have to step back. But I, I just want to make sure that, because one of the things that happens so much, especially much more actually, at least in my experience in the data with black women, is that, hey, don't get upset, soften up. Like, you know, you know, I'm just, you know, and so I want to make sure that there is a real clear understanding of genuine vulnerability and weaponized vulnerability. uh Um, I think that's one thing. I think in terms of a tool, which is really interesting, Um, I speak out pretty openly on social about things that I I believe in and I I got really upset this week and I was like, how can I be less uh, rageful would be the word I was looking for. And so I started doing this analysis of like shitty comments by middle-aged white women and just kind of looking to see like, what's the pattern? And what I came up with is they're angry with me for one of two reasons. One would be both heartbreaking in equal measure one is they're angry because I actually believe black people when they tell me about their experiences or two they're angry because I believe them and I do something about it and I think what's hard maybe for me is I think they're actually angry that I believe people when they tell me about their lived experiences because I think that it gets pushed to a point where they say to themselves, if this is true, this is unacceptable. And if this is true, this is not the world as I thought it to be at all. If this is true, I'm supporting things that are monstrous in some ways. And so where I think collective vulnerability comes in is... The question that I think we have to ask in the work that we do is, what would it mean for me as a white person if the story that Yaba or Tarana is telling me is true, what, what would that mean? And that would mean that I would have, that would be excruciating shame and vulnerability, that I would have to stare down decisions I make every day. Um, and so, Toronto taught me something really important doing this book with her. Um, and then I had the same lesson to be taught by Yaba in this podcast interview that we did, which is if your anti-racism work—and I'm using I'm using Toronto's words here—that I think captured a sentiment from Yaba as well—and it's a learning for me. So I don't want to be attributed with the learning clearly. If your anti-racism work doesn't include embracing black humanity, black love, black excellence, black joy, black scholarship. I'm not interested in it. And to embrace black humanity and love and excellence and joy means coming to terms with decisions we make every day to support systems
2: that dehumanize and
3: diminish those things. And that's the
2: Can I I also jump into because as you asked the question, Tracy, and as you started to respond, Brene, when we think about this as a tool, I'm thinking about the experiences that we had from this summer, this past summer moving forward. We were all a part of Share the Mic. We all started engaging in these interracial public conversations. And so when I think of being on the podcast with you, Brene, when I think of a conversation Um, that Taran and I had with Glennon uh, Doyle and Abby Wambach and another conversation I had with Glennon Doyle myself, one thing I kept getting as feedback from both black and white women is it seems that we somehow modeled how to have an honest conversation, right? That there were black women who couldn't believe that I said what I said to white women's faces, right? There were white women, as Brene said, who were like, okay, this is an example of how to be quiet and listen, right? And so for me that, that the vulnerability at play is this idea of like there's a risk involved right I'm putting myself out there in a particular way in public but even if it was just one on one I'm putting myself out there in a particular way because it's a truth that has to be told also in hopes that you're going to do something with that truth exactly it's,
4: it's literally what happened when we when we came together for the book right I Renee and I's friendship is true two years old maybe three years old you know and and we do a lot of kicking and non-work stuff right and and that's great that's a, a space that I, I really uh cherish that we don't have to come together and have like anti-racist text checks, <laughs> um and so when the conversation this thing was heavy on my heart that was happening um and other times in my life when things have been heavy on my heart, I've actually turned to her work, right? <laughs> no, <or> so <laughs> just go to books. But I turned to her work in various um, for various things, and I thought about how much I had not said to her about. I said all the things about how, how amazing the work was, but I had not said what I've said now, which is I feel like I've had to contort myself some just to find myself in work. It, it's brilliant. It's beautiful, and it's it has been effective in my life. If I close my eyes sometimes and tilt my head this way, I can, I can, you know, see me. Um, or if I don't think of these other things and I, for half a beat was nervous about like, well, this is going to be our first test. It's just going to be the sort of test of friendship and see, can I say these things to you? And, and I could, and not only could I, it was, um, I feel like both of us had a moment of vulnerability that was like, whew, okay," <laughs> you know, "we got that out," and and now let's have a, a conversation about what comes next. But her response to that, my approach, and then her response was key. And her response was like, "Let's do something." I want to absolutely. I want to do something, um, and that's what makes the difference. and it's human, human, human to human sort of connection.
1: Uh, I love that. Uh, before we get to the audience questions, I just have one more question, and it's for you, Yaba, specifically um, from, from One Drop. And one of the things that is mentioned in the book, someone talks about how um, other races are exclusive. I'm not sure if that's the exact word they use. And they say that one of the things that has been difficult for them about being Black is that anybody can be black in the sense that not anybody can be white. You have to have a certain amount of white blood is sort of the point that they're making. And I'm wondering, like in this culture of scarcity that I think, I think we all function in, in, in and that's sort of the way that America is run is of this capitalist scarcity model. And I know for me speaking personally, that a lot of the shame that I have for myself is around believing the scarcity model, feeling like I've been duped to believe this thing that that I'm now learning as I get older isn't real. So I'm wondering, what what do you see that Blackness as openness does to Black people? And I think it might be positive and negative. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. And I know that's very open.
2: I mean, hmm, so many things I could say. I think... Starting at the beginning and understanding the origins of race and how whiteness came to be defined as exclusive, right? Right and pure, and the reasons for it was to isolate power. Right? So blackness having to be, for lack of a better word, open wasn't something that we did necessarily, right? Okay. It's something that was created and we met it to some degree. In this moment, however, it's interesting on the one hand yes there's that kind of historical reality and that lived reality but then there's also a level of gatekeeping that we also experience right where we're all still trying to struggle to define blackness and keep certain people out let certain people in so on and so forth and so for me I'm not sure if I'm answering the question, but when I think of blackness as expansive, I'm thinking of it more from a global identity perspective, meaning again, getting outside of the confines of an American understanding of race. Because in this context, like if we isolate our understanding of black and white or race or white supremacy or what have you to the American experience, it's so limited, right? It's why you have folks in this moment who will call themselves minorities. Right. Or, or believe, you know, a particular reality. And for a lot of Americans not having traveled outside of America, you don't realize that there's so many more of us in this world than there are of them. Right. And so for me, the the, the usefulness of thinking of blackness as expansive, is to recognize that this is a limited experience. Right, It doesn't have to be the only experience That my folks are everywhere And I'm connected to them In a multiplicity of ways And it goes beyond race right? It's really about culture It's really about lived experience And, and value systems and so on and so forth So
1: I don't know if that answers your question It does I, <laughs> I, 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 It does, it really does um, Okay, so now it's time for the audience questions um, So the first one is How do White allies slash accomplices move past, through, and beyond shame to a place of true camaraderie in work with our brothers and sisters of color? <laughs>
4: it's a Japanese question.
2: It is. <laughs> I, I, I'm, gonna come, I'm gonna come back to the idea of pacing and patience I understand that this moment, and this moment I don't mean right now, it could be your lifetime. I understand the discomfort, right? That comes once you are faced with a particular truth and how we all struggle to hurry up and do something to get out of it. And as painful and excruciating as it may be, sometimes you kind of have to sit in it. And so for me, I encourage white people to like ground yourself in whiteness. Like really dig into whiteness, understand the history, understand the ideology, For better, I'm sorry, for worse, get get, get all up in it before you jump over that to go fix something else, right? For me, that's what is helpful for the limited relationships that I have with, with white folks. The ones that click are the ones that get that right that understand that there's no one quick thing i can do to fix this there's no one way for me to put on my shirt and say i'm an ally yaba what what do you need me to do i need you to understand your people and call them out right i feel like there's important work for white people to do with white people i might i'm speaking for myself i see a lot of white people who are so quick to want to jump on the front line claim an ally identity Hold hands with people, quote unquote, of color to 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 somehow isolate themselves from the other whites. Look at me, y'all. I'm over here with the blacks and the browns. I'm mm-hmm. different. And the good whites. I'm a good white, right? As opposed to go sit over here with the work I we need you to do. Go talk, go talk to your people, so I don't have to.
0: Okay. <laughs>
2: Because they're going to hear it differently from you than they will from me. So if you get grounded in the work in the ways that we've been forced to get grounded in the work, you can take that information to your
4: people. Can I also add here, though, there is a growing, you know, anti-racism is the order of the day, and it's, it's become a buzzword like intersectional and some of the other words that we've woke, woke dictionary. And, <laughs> and what I've watched this is a very tricky and slippery Slow, but I have watched people commodify this lane, right? And so now what they're doing is, and God knows I'm not here to pay for white folks, but there is a way in which anti racism education workshops, whatever, has been commodified. And really what they're doing is commodifying white shame and white guilt. So white people feel bad because they want to be better allies. And so you go pay $49.99 or join 50 million Patreons and you get all these people who have educated themselves on Instagram and said they're an expert so that you can feel better. And I, and I, and I caution you all, right? Like, it's a it's conversation we've been having in various ways all day. The reason why I have a relationship with Renee or with Glennon or whoever other white women or people that I have is because they see me as a human being and I see them as a human being. The, the engagement with Black humanity, and I don't mean without color, I mean as a black human being, but the engagement in black humanity is uh, is about that, about me as a person. Don't patronize me. Don't call me up and offer me $5 for Starbucks because somebody got shot in the street by a police officer. Don't do that. Don't do that. And be careful about, you wanna be an ally? There are books that have been around for decades. There are educators who have been around I'm not trying to be elitist to say you have to have a PhD and blah 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 in order to teach. Cause I'll have one, right? But I am saying, don't be led by your guilt. Yes. Don't be led in, the, in this work as an ally by your guilt. Yes. Um, and that would be so much more helpful because we, what we need is authentic relationships. We need you to show up authentically and do your learning, do your whatever. But my God,
3: <laughs> and I get it. And I also
4: feel a little bad sometimes for white folks. So I'm like, it must be confusing. It has to be <laughs> dizzying on social media, right? Because you got people yelling and screaming at you and saying, hey, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. You
2: know what, Karana, I'm, I'm going to say I'm proud of you, sis, for <laughs> saying that out loud because this is a conversation we've been having. These are quiet conversations many of us have been having and have been, we wanna talk about, we, this is real time. We wanna talk about vulnerability, right? Struggling with whether or not this is an appropriate conversation to have in public because it implicates some of our comrades and colleagues. There are a lot of folks who are riding the reparations train in this moment because folks are paying an obnoxious amount of money just because they feel guilty about being white and right. so there are a lot of folks quote unquote of color who are making a whole lot of money off of white folks guilt. To say that out loud though, right?
4: you said about that, I get it and I'm, not, and I'm only saying it because, one, because it's true and two, because I, I'm not trying to stop nobody's so listen, get your hustle on <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to stop people's hustle but I am, like this is a serious situation Right? All of the work that we're doing, whether we're in whatever movement work we're doing and social justice work that we're doing, it is really towards a better humanity. Now, I am focused on black humanity. I'm focused on my people, but ultimately, we don't exist alone, right? So, all of our work collectively is towards shifting humanity in a particular kind of way. So, I I just feel like we can do this differently and we can do this better. And it is not, it's not, it's not. Advancing that work, really, you know. And you know, y'all, yeah, but we we do talk about this a lot privately, and try to figure out how to how to have this conversation publicly. I just think that, that it impedes the work of being an ally or an advocate or whatever. If you're being led by, like, you know, there's some people who they, all they do is call out white people's bad behavior, and and y'all are like master You just okay, take all my money to tell me how shitty I am. <laughs> Actually, learn. What have you actually taken into? You know, like um, how how is that advancing your your work and your allyship? How is that? Except you just scared to make a move left or right because you might say or do the wrong thing.
2: Who was it? Was it Shannon Sharp that that video that was going around Instagram? Who was saying something about like it? if you know black people and you can't empathize with what they're experiencing right now, you don't have black friends, you just know black people. I, I think the thing that Tarana is saying that's most important to summarize for white folks who seek to be or, or, or self-identify as allies or accomplices is that A, center yourself in that whiteness, in the history of whiteness, learn all that you like, be critical of whiteness as opposed to the National Geographic view of the other. Let's go find out all we can about all the other cultures and feel better, right? No, find out about yourself first and foremost so that you can understand how we got here. Right. Right? First and foremost, but also learn to connect with Black humanity and not just Black causes, not just throwing money at Black issues. Who are the Black people that you actually are attempting to connect with and understand?
4: And I'm at one last little thing, <laughs> because if you connect with the people, that you will find that we are all black people care about climate change. We care about gun control. We care about all these different things. So there may be alliance when you whatever the causes that you are passionate about, expand your thinking beyond your your you know the, what might be tunnel vision to see how it affects other communities that's another way to be an ally and advocate right you you whatever the thing is that you're passionate about find out find out how it's adversely affecting people of color black folks whatever like there's so many different ways to do this without anyway you said
1: enough (laughs) i'm so i'm so glad that you both said that because i think it's obviously very true um and I, I think about what you're saying about how, you know, th- we've been done a huge disservice. Black people have been done a huge disservice when we're all lumped together in these ways that it's a black issue. Like, what does that mean? You know, we all have different issues that we care about. And I think that lumping together is not only dangerous, but it's a waste of time. And it, it, it's, a not, it's not specific. Um, here's another question from the audience. If vulnerability and boundaries go together, as Brene Brown says, who defines the boundaries? Take it away,
2: Brene.
3: <laughs> as, you know what I was thinking about when y'all were talking about uh, this thing that y'all just talked about right on, right here, right in front in public? That uh, <laughs> I, I thought. I thought we were in a text-only lockdown on that conversation.
2: Talata <laughs> started it. you i right? really the
3: text. But I think of Iko Bathia, who's a contributor to You Are Your Best Thing, who said, be wary of any anti-racism work that's transactional because it will never be transformational. In order for it to be transformational, it must be relational. And that's much harder. Yeah, I was just thinking that just kept coming up to like be wary of transactional. It's like when I go into organizations and they've got the DEIB checklist. <laughs>
0: oh,
3: shit. I mean, is it 1975 and someone forgot to tell me to wear my bell bottoms? <laughs> <laughs> you
4: know what? Also, we're not saying by any stretch of the imagination don't pay black people for their okay. work. No, don't I
2: pay black,
4: black people. But, right. That's not what I'm saying at all. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry.
3: No. Yes. Yeah. So, and I mean. and we try. We modeled that in our co in our co creation. Like, absolutely, um, pay black people. Um, but if you think your redemption's going to come that way, that's that's problematic because you're still not in the humanity. If you think you can buy it, just like you can't buy that with anybody. No. Yeah. Um, vulnerability and boundaries. I think. That's an individual thing. So vulnerability minus boundaries is not vulnerability. It's it's manipulation, it's oversharing, it's dehumanization. I mean, it can be a lot of different things. And so for me, I set my own I set my own boundaries and I'm super clear on my boundaries. And so someone will say, Hey, can you share, you know, can you share the story about, you know, your son, or can you share this story about no, I can I can't. Well, I thought you were vulnerable. I am. And that crosses right over for me from vulnerability to intimacy, yeah. then right over to mind your own fucking business. <laughs> uh, you know, just kind of that's the thing. And so, oh yeah, sorry about that. But
2: <laughs> we're well, not on sex, just to bring <laughs> you back. You screwed that up. <laughs> <laughs> um, look
3: at you me, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. I'm <laughs> ashamed. I know you well enough to know that is not true, but it's <laughs> not true. <laughs> um, no but i think it's for everybody else so vulnerability is a very personal thing but to not have, we've all seen like oh vulnerability is good vulnerability is good then this here's everything um and that's not that's not vulnerability that's something else that's sharing stories that are dying inside of you to be told but not you know i always say And I live by this, and this came from the research, and it was hard for me to learn personally, but we share our stories with people who've earned the right to hear them in spaces that respect our autonomy. Say it again.
4: I'm about to say Say that again.
3: We share our stories with people who have earned the right to hear them in spaces that are safe enough to protect our autonomy. So when I go into a culture, an organizational culture, and people are like, okay, we need our folks to be more vulnerable. Because you know, here's the thing about vulnerability that I think is inconvertible evidence data-wise. It is the birthplace of creativity, innovation, intimacy, love, trust, um, things that we all need in our lives. But the greatest casualty of trauma... Is the inability or unwillingness to be vulnerable, and trauma includes white supremacy. That's right. And so, so when I when so when a leader says to me, "Can you help us make this place more vulnerable?" I said, "Sure, I'm, I'm happy to do that." I'd like to do a focus group with the people who have the least power here. What for? I want to find out how safe it is to be vulnerable here. And then what I learned very quickly is. No, no, no. You, you can't do that. And, I mean, it, like if a white guy cries, it's almost like, oh, my God. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. You, it broke my heart. Um, if a black woman shows emotion, it's, hey, control yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and so vulnerability requires a lot of work. That's why I think one other example is teaching. I always tell teachers, and the best teachers I know, and, God, teachers are so good at this. I have teacher friends who will say, welcome to the classroom. I'd like everyone to take the first five minutes. Take your armor off and hang it on the hooks. Mm-hmm. And then what the teacher will say when they leave is, you've got to go back to other teachers in the classroom now. Put your armor back on. You're not safe out there without it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: And that's on uh-huh. odds, right? <laughs> like that is that is our lived experience of taking the armor on and off and when it's safe to do that and how it's safe to do that and i think that's what we are seeing like reflected in the book i and my essay in the book is about health about my personal health and it is it's certainly connected to how vulnerable i feel right i don't want to be the person to say i can't show up and do this work because i'm sick not as a black woman, I don't want to be that person. And it may not even be that they, anybody's imposing anything on me, but the ideas that have been created in this world about how black women show up and our worth is tied to our work. And if I can't work, then what am I worth to anybody
3: as a black woman? I can't just exist and be worthy because that's not what the world tells me. But-
1: mm-hmm.
3: i just about to stop trying to, because that, your essay, I just, you have to be honest. How many people? How many white managers in a room where another white manager will say, "Where's Tirana? Yes. Tirana's out yes. sick again today." Yeah. Oh. yeah, and would not do that with a white employee.
4: Can I say I had a nerv- I'm having a nervous breakdown, or I'm having a mental health. I literally need a mental health day. Like I've, we've shared this story before, but you know, I remember when Sandra Bland was was murdered. I was still I was working in an organization and I showed up that day to work. I was so done. I was so like my heart it was just sort of like this week with Makia Bryant. It had hit me like a ton of bricks, but I had to go to work the next day and I remember showing up and this group of white women who I just got along with fine, right? There was no issues at the job, had gathered around because somebody bought a puppy and they were all looking at the pictures of the puppy and they were laughing and giggling and smiling and I was fighting back tears. And I was sitting at my desk, and I just, and instead of engaging in this little camaraderie, I sat at my desk and like, oh, try to come look at the puppy, da 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 da. da. And, I, and, I, and everything in me, right? So here's a choice. I can say, I don't wanna deal with that puppy today, I can't deal with that. And then it becomes, what's wrong with her? She always has an attitude. She's always so da 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 da. The, the, I can't bring that vulnerability. I'm feeling it. I feel like a target, you know? that somebody who could be my cousin who looks physically like somebody in my family was murdered I, I, where's the space for that right? so there's a whole level of danger um, that's just attached to me as a black woman trying
2: coming into space and saying I need or I feel you know And the the question about boundaries is real, so thank you for saying that, Brene, because I do, it's a reminder to all of us, particularly after this week, especially for those of us who spend way too much time on social media, Taran and I have had to comfort each other this week, um, because social media has been a a disgusting mess, Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: uh, so many of us have felt it. But like, you, you know, you bring up the example of Sandra Bland, you bring up the example, ultimately, we still have to live in this world, right? We still have to interact with folks, in in public spaces. And so the lack of empathy for black life and the idea that we're going to be impacted by it. Like, we just supposed to keep going. There's still work to do, right? Whereas when some random white man who played baseball a thousand years ago dies, we gotta have a whole ceremony and breaking news and flag at half mass, you know what I mean? And so it's like, where's the regard for black life in that same way, but then also just to see the disregard for black life and the extent to which people want to argue, um, the circumstances around, uh, Micaiah Boyd's, uh, murder. Ryan, I'm sorry. Murder, you know, and to, to, you go out of your way to engage with folks on social media that you don't even know. Why is this a debate that you are so invested in to the point that you want to get nasty with people you don't even know. You know what I mean? Like people.
4: You you us in pain, but that's the other. I'm sorry to cut you off, y'all. But, no. Like, but you do it as you see us in pain. We didn't engage people in a political debate. We're literally online saying, "My heart is breaking. This child was murdered in the street, and I don't know how to deal with it. I'm so sad." And to that, the response is,
2: but "She had a knife.
4: She had a knife. A knife. And, you know all these things." This is what I'm saying about engaging black humanity. And it was a ton of folks. Because why didn't you even see my page, right? They followed me. I have, you know, lots of lots of white followers who were like, well, normal." this is not like George Floyd. Oh, because you have to watch a black man's life be snuffed out for eight minutes and 46 seconds for you to feel some empathy. For you to understand that this is horrific. But you don't even understand. Like, we, the black girls immediately understood the circumstances. We saw 16. We saw We saw uh girls coming and jump her, we heard forced at home and we said, I know what this is. I know what this is. Mm-hmm. Right? And so whew. <laughs> this is just I don't even remember what, the, what question yeah. we answered I don't answer question anymore. We just it's we okay. just don't open the mouth. But that's that's just the part about black humanity that is so you can't pick and choose. And and I'm gonna tell you, I, I often talk about this um experience I had with Charles Fuller who wrote um, a soldier story and a soldier's play and he I hosted him for an event and somebody asked him about if you don't know it's an old movie and an old play called a soldier story. It's one of Denzel Washington's first big roles and in, 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 a, in it a black army sergeant is murdered on an army base in the 1940s and Denzel Washington, no Harold Rollins is investigating whatever Denzel Washington is a um, suspect but the army sergeant who was murdered is mean as a mug, and he is mean to the black soldiers who he's overseeing. And somebody in the audience asked, "What was Sergeant's redeeming qualities? What should we like? Where do we find a place to empathize with him?" And Charles Fuller said, "Why does he have to have some? Why does he need redeeming qualities? He was evil. Hmm. You watched what I watched." Hmm. Was evil. He was mean and nasty and cruel to these, to these folks. And we all watched that. And he said, if you want to authentically engage with black humanity, then you have to accept black evil. Right. And I'm not, and I'm not applying that in any way to the situation that happen, but I am saying that we're human beings, which means we have a whole range of humanity, which means that sometimes if we show up in a, you see a video of somebody in a fight and they have a kitchen knife in their hand it doesn't there's more to that story but if you saw us as human beings and you could see the nuance in that and pick it apart and you can then that's how you really appreciate and engage with our humanity you don't just make a decision based on this one thing that
2: you saw on the screen and so making that just. and so making that decision determined that because she had that knife that she deserved to be murdered in the way observed. that he was. I would rather be here sitting and talking about the fact that she's now in jail and the circumstances perhaps of her sentencing as opposed to talking about the fact that she was shot four times in the chest. Within 23 seconds of the police officer
4: arriving on the scene, the police officer who sat across the street for six minutes. And didn't de- de-escalate this 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 situation. Now as the story unfolds, I'm 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 gonna be I'm, I'm gonna be anxious to see how people start backtracking and ooh and, and ah
2: when they um, get other details,
4: right? We like we the father mother yeah. who called the two adult women who were
2: there three days in a row to fight this sixteen year old girl. Of course she came outside with a knife. But if you talk to black women, if you talk to black girls, perhaps we could give you context to understand her humanity. But you've already projected the lack of humanity based upon your limited experiences and understanding for Black people. Meanwhile, what's your boy's name that was walking around after he killed two people? Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah, with the
4: AR-17. He's yeah. 17, he's a child. Yeah. child with the automatic rifle who killed
2: people in the street
4: on purpose.
2: And sis is coming out with a steak knife and she deserved to die. But we don't have to go there it's six o'clock it maybe even worse
3: it may be even worse in a lot of instances because i'm not it, what i'm what i'm actually seeing is that people are running toward the story oh yes as oh. a collection of evidence to assuage mm-hmm. their their consciousness raising to say
2: see whew, <laughs> i knew somehow it was going to be their fault yeah Almost like they're tired. They're ready to stop with the anti-racist uh, veneer.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This girl has a nice, I am. I. Whoo, I'm done. I'm done with this stuff now.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Like yeah, and it's like I don't know. Very yes. difficult to de-escalate when you're just trained to kill. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It is six o'clock. Um, I don't know there's not like a lovely way to end this this stuff is ongoing <laughs> and it's shitty and like I don't know I don't want to even try to put a bow on it I do want to say this though that I think is important and part of the evening which is please go out and get these books um, you are your best thing comes out on Tuesday so you can still place your pre-order and one drop is out in the world I just picked up my copy physically so for those of you who knew it was out of stock it is back in stock people go get it also loyalty so- bookstores was our generous and lovely host today so if you are purchasing either of these books or any other books today it's independent bookstore day please support loyalty bookstore or your local favorite independent bookstore it is impossible to do this work without the support of these people on the ground who sell our books and love our books so thank you all three of you so much for being here tonight and thank you to the anti-racist book festival for having us and thank you to loyalty books for loving us